Grab your Bible with me and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing our series in Ephesians. Rich doctrine, rich living. And this, this Sunday, as we focus on rich living, our rich living, what rich living through Jesus Christ looks like, we have an opportunity to see once more from God's word, what he would, God would have for us. And I've titled the sermon this morning, Love Looks Different. You see that in your sermon outline if you have it. Love looks different. And the kind of love that Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 7 are going to call us to have in our lives looks very different from the type of love that you are used to hearing in the songs, in the culture, in the groups, in the people near and around you. Love is used quite often when it maybe should be used quite sparingly. Because love is a big commitment. And the Bible and God's word and the scripture this morning is going to spell out for you and for me what does the life of love look like for a true believer in Jesus Christ? And what doesn't it look like? What are some things that it doesn't look like as well? And so we're going to focus on that this morning. If you have your Bible, you have your outline, you're ready to join me. And I, I, I think there's only one way I can illustrate this well. One of the things I appreciate the most about my wife is that she will go along with some of the movies that I want to watch, even if she's never seen it, never heard of it, and doesn't like the storyline. And, uh, and so we, a few weeks back, maybe two Friday nights ago, we had an opportunity to have a movie night together, and we watched a movie that maybe some of you are familiar with, or maybe some of you aren't, I'm not sure. But this is the movie John Q. It's a Denzel Washington movie. It's from quite a while ago. I mean... I, I watched it when I was a kid, and I was touched by the story. And as a pastor, I'm still touched by the story to watch. If you aren't familiar with the mov movie, I see some of you nodding with me that you know the story. But basically what happens in this story is there's a dad, and it's Denzel Washington. And he has a son who has a sudden and dramatic heart failure. And as a result of his sudden and dramatic heart failure... They, they take him to doctors. They find out that basically the size of his heart has increased too much. His heart is too weak. He's going to need a heart transplant. And not only was his son going to need a heart transplant in this film, but his son, his days were actually coming to an end because if he didn't get the heart transplant, he would die. And so, as, as John and his wife try in the story to find out ways that they can help get this heart transplant, they turn to the place that you and I this morning would turn if you found out you needed a heart transplant to their insurance. And, and as a result of the insurance coverage or lack thereof, the insurance wasn't going to cover, they called it an elective surgery in the movie, and they weren't going to cover his son's heart transplant. Hundreds of thousands of dollars at that time in that economy probably translates to a million dollars in our day and time if the movie were made today. A million dollars for the surgery, and it's elective, and we're not going to help with any of it. And so John and his wife, they started selling things in their home. They started doing fundraisers. They started doing benefits for their son. They started to try and raise the money, but, the, but they were coming up short, coming up short, coming up short, and the hospital wouldn't help him. And so as you can kind of tell, the surgeon is on the wall there with a gun held up to his chest, 
John Q does what every dad dreams of doing to help his family. Maybe not, I don't know, but you're willing to do, I guess. <laughs> willing to do for your family. John Q decides, okay, if the hospital's not going to do it willingly, I'm going to make them do it by force. Except John has only a limited knowledge of heart transplants. He doesn't understand how this whole process is going to go. So the hospital wouldn't help him. He takes the hospital captive. It becomes a giant hostage situation. And as the film goes on, it's apparent they're trying to kill John with a sniper. They're trying to send people in the building to take him out. They're trying to get the hostages out. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting movie. If you don't like hostage movies, don't watch it. And now I'm giving away spoilers for the whole thing, so you'll have known the plot. And at the very end of the film, where it appears to be no hope, no way out for John and his family, John Q decides to do something that I wonder if you and I would be willing to do. John Q orders to this doctor and tells him, I'm going to take my life, and I want you to put my heart into my son. I want you to give him my heart. We're the same blood type. I'm, his heart's too big, so the hole is going to fit. Everything is perfect. The, doc, the doctor said, I can't do it. It's unethical. I'm not able to do that. And he said, you're telling me if I'm lying here dead in this hospital, you won't take my heart to save my sons. And then the very end of the movie, even against his better judgment, the surgeon agrees. Fine. If you take your own life, I'll perform the surgery. His son's in the hospital with him, dying. And that was John Q. That was his plan. At the end of the film, when you're thinking things are going to go well, it ends with the father's ability to say, I'll end my life. Don't end his I could just end the story there, but since I've invested you this long in the movie, just in the nick of time, a heart comes, a heart comes through a helicopter, and the movie ends really well, and the dad lives, and the son lives, and the dad has to spend a couple years in prison for holding a hospital hostage, <laughs> but the son lives, and the hospital, the hospital agreed to do the surgery for free and give the operation. It, it's an interesting film. Um, I think it was created in a sense to maybe attack the healthcare system in America back in the early 2000s, but um, it's an interesting film. It's complete. It's mostly fictional story. There's some, some parts of it based off a true story in Canada, but it's mostly fictional. But the heartstrings are pulled the entire film because you realize something important that I want to take a look at in God's Word this morning. The type of love that John had for his son was different than the type of love we talk about on Valentine's Day. It's different than the type of love we talk about when you hang up the phone and you say, I love you. I love you. You can hang up from the phone from a close family member. I love you and hang up the phone. It's a different type of love that John Q had for his son. And it's a different type of love then that God's word calls you and I to have for the world around us and the life we live. So, so look, dive into scripture with me. Let's look together this morning at the type of love that looks so different found in God's word. Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 
a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should be, there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ, and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. First point on your outline this morning is that just as you were loved, just as you were loved, love others. Just as you were loved, love others. See, as we rewind the past few weeks of the scriptures, what, you, what we've looked at is Jesus forgave us. Paul gave us that teaching. He forgave you. God forgives you of the sins you've experienced. He, and then, something we, a new, another theme that's still apparent in the scripture is then, because he forgave you and because he loves you, he gave you a new life. And with your new life, which we talked more about last week, with your new life, he calls you to love differently. He calls you and I to love differently. And this is the type of love that he wants us to express to one another. Paul is teaching the church. The type of love you ought to have is just as you were loved by Jesus, so use that type of love to love other people. Paul pays a special attention. You'll see the reference a few times here in chapter, uh, chapter 4, and it's, and it's spread throughout of chapter 4 and then into chapter 5. But in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul talked about the worthy walk, the worthy walk of a true believer. And it's different from the way the world walks, he, he taught us. And then in verse 4, 17, he says, you know what? It's so different from the way the world works that walks that you would not even recognize it. And then this morning he encourages us that walk that you're having with Jesus should be a walk in love. A walk in love. Follow God's example, verse 1, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. That's your walk. That's your walk. Your walk is different, it's worthy, and it's filled with love. Here's the idea that he paints for us that you all have probably figured out the next bullet point this morning. But children follow their parents. Children follow their parents. Follow God's example just as dearly loved Children. Follow is, follow is the Greek word or another term maybe your Bible has is imitate. Imitate Christ. Imitate him. It's the same word for mimic. Mimic. 
When he says, follow Christ's example, follow what he's done, mimic what he's done. Because we're children of God. Paul uses that term. He's used it all along through Ephesians. But he teaches us, and it's a reminder to us, children get traits and genes and actions and responses just like their parents. Many of you know of your own kids. Oh, this, this, one, this of our kid is really a lot like mom. And I see some parts of me in them too, if you're dad. Or the other way, oh, they're a lot like their dad and a little bit like their mom. Or there's some things that you can characterize through that. But you know what else? It's not even just biological families. But, but when you grow up in a home, no matter where that home is or why that home is or what that home is, you start to look like the people in authority who have cared for you and loved you and taking, and taking priority in your life. And so the scripture understands that too. Paul understands that too. As you live your relationship with Jesus as your father, be children who follows his example. Be children who imitate your father. And Jesus does something in Scripture then that we're supposed to imitate. See, Jesus in Scripture teaches us that love in Scripture sets a very high standard. Love sets a very high standard. Verse 2, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is a call all through scripture to love the way that Jesus loved. And if you look at the life of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus that we love to talk about as Christians who follow him, his sole mission coming to the earth was to die for your sins out of a love for you. That's what his purpose was. And so when he, Paul says, you're called to that standard, that's the calling on a Christian's life. You are to love like Jesus loved. You are to love, be, your walk, your everyday walk with Jesus is to be categorized by a love that that love is set at the highest possible standard. Love like Jesus. 1 Peter 4.8 talks about love covering a multitude of sin when it says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers over a multitude of sins. The type of love you have, the forgiving type of love that Jesus had, love covers over a multitude of sins. Jesus' love literally paid for all of our sins. But the type of love we can share and express to those around us is forgiving love, is gracious love, is humble love. That when sin happens to us, we are willing to love and forgive. Just like Christ loves and forgives. Literally, Jesus loves, loved so much 
but he was willing to die, as we know, for every foul thing we've ever done. And this scripture, 1 John 3, 16 to 18, drives at the point of what Paul is teaching here. This is what the scripture says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It's easy to stand in the pulpit. It's easy to stand as the author of scripture even. And as he's reminding here in 1 John. It's easy to say we should love those around us. But it's quite another thing. To live in action and in truth. With love to those people near to us. If you look at that. You know this is the type of love. Love is this. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so can, how can the love of God be in us? The way to have love in us is through actions and in truth. How can we reflect that love Jesus gave to us? It's through our actions. It's through what we do. What we say when we're interacting with the people around us. What we do to love them. How we show them the love of Jesus Christ. He laid down his life for you and for me. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't do all that research. I wasn't going to spend the time to think about it. I don't know if the author of that, or the writers of that movie that I referenced at the start of the sermon this morning, I don't know if they were Christians or not. But what a better portrayal is there of the type of love Jesus had for you and for me. That he was willing to give up his life for you, his child. He was willing to trade his life for the value of your life. He was willing to reject who he was in order to give you hope for the future. He was willing to sacrifice himself so that you wouldn't have to sacrifice yourself. Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. And what happens in return? What happens in return? He calls you to live with that type of love for others. We're not going to the cross. We don't have modern day crosses where we're being put on. But, but there is a modern day hope. There is a modern day truth. There is a modern day belief that if you follow a scripture like this, you are going to sometimes be called to sacrifice to love other people. It's going to feel awkward. It's going to feel bad at times. It's going to feel... Like it's unfair or unjust at certain times because you are giving up a lot to love someone else. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice. I don't think that this is just kind of a, a cutesy term, by the way, that the Bible says. I think that the scripture really means it. That you ought to be willing, that if it came down to it, you would be willing to give up your life. For your brother or sister in Christ. It's really hard in our modern day culture in America. To picture what that might look like. 
But over the years and years of martyrdom in the history of the church, it's not hard to, to picture what that might look like. It's not hard to picture that a missionary wants to go into the jungles of Africa and preach the truth because of love for a people group, no matter if that costs them their life. It's, it's not unheard of that back in the Iron Curtain that people were sneaking in regardless of the cost in order to share the love of Jesus with those who are lost in darkness. It's not unheard of that people still today are finding creative ways to cross the border into China under teaching missions to teach the love and truth of who Jesus is. There are still opportunities that people today have to do what the scripture says, to sacrifice and love others just like we've been loved. So, the self-centeredness comes next. Our actions of love matter. Love is a high Christian calling. Jesus here says, walk in this, Paul is teaching through Jesus that we should walk in the way of love. That's what we ought to do. Love the people around you. Love the people around you. So then, in verses 4 through 6, Paul is going to point out some self-centeredness. Some self-centered actions. Some self-centered ideas that are quite the opposite of the self-sacrificing love Jesus calls for. It's kind of different last week. Last week, what we were seeing is the old life was full of these sins, but the new life in Christ isn't. This week, we're seeing, hey, you're called to love. You're called to love. And there is no room in the heart of a love for some of these scenario issues that we're going to look at this morning. What do you love? What do you love? Where is your love put? Where does your love live? Have caution because the next part of our sermon we have to evaluate our hearts and say where is the love? Look what, look what Paul says with me. In verses 4 through 6. Pardon me, verse 3. I got my uh, outline there wrong. Verse 3 through 6. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Self-centered sin is the opposite of loving. Self-centered, self-focused sins are the opposite of loving. And so, Paul teaches. 
His teaching is clear in verse 3. Among you, there must not even be a hint of. The things he's going to list among you and your heart, when, they, when people in your community in Ephesus, here's, here's the real battle. That community, as we've talked about over and over, was filthy with sin. It was wretched with sin. It was filled with awfulness. You wouldn't send your families out to walk around the town because of how terrible it was. Now, unfortunately, there are some parts and places in America where that's true today. Everett, Michigan, maybe not exactly that. But there in Ephesus, in this time in Paul's writing, it was filled with sins, filled with the stuff he's going to talk about. And what's the calling then? You know what? To really love the world around you? To really show them the love of Christ? To really show them there's a difference? To love others differently? You have to not even have a hint of this stuff in you. Not even a little bit of it. Because if you start to have that in your life, they're going to think that that's okay. They're going to not realize what true love is. True love from Jesus, what is it? They're going to be confused. Don't confuse them. No hint of these things. No hint of bad conduct. No hint of bad conduct. What are the bad conducts that he's talking about? No sexual immorality. No impurity. No greed. To the church in Ephesus, he says to them, yeah, there are places right in the street where sexual sin is happening. You should not be there. Yeah, there are times and places where you can have, sexual sin can enter right into your home for the cost of probably cheaper than to get some lunch. That's not to enter your home. Sexual sin was prevalent and a problem, and Paul's addressing it head on to them. He's not pretending like it doesn't exist. Sexual sin, pornea is the same term for pornography that we get. If Paul were here today, he would address that head on and say, this is the type of sin. There is not to be any hint of these sexual immoralities among the church. Because the culture is so used to that. The culture has normalized that. That sin has become normal to them. And so if we're called to love differently and love like Jesus, we have to live separate from the culture. No bad conduct. No sexual immorality. Greed. The greed is like a desire... To possess more and more and more. And sometimes greed becomes to the point where you're just desiring to possess more regardless of whether you need it or not. He warns about greed. He warns them. Again, idols were prevalent in that community. It was filled with all sorts of things. Drawing the attention. Drawing the money. Drawing the resources. Have this statue. Have this carved image. Have this goddess. Have this ability. Go to this temple and go to this temple and go to this temple to worship these gods. There was all kinds of things like that. And those gods made money the most important. Those gods made the priority of give, giving all of this money or using or what you had, they made it sound like you would be blessed if you had more. So the world around them was chasing money. 
Paul warns them, no greed should be among the life of a believer. If no greed is among the life of a believer, what's the opposite? We, we, learned, we did learn about that last week. Generosity. Not greed, but be generous with your resources. Be generous with what God has given you. No hint of impurity. These three warnings here of bad conduct, they all deal with habitual practices of sin. It's not the occasional sin act that happens. Every single last one of us sins. What Paul is warning them about is the continual act of sin. Don't have this as a routine and regular pattern in your life. Don't have sexual sin. Don't have impurity. Don't have greed as patterns in your life. And if you have those as patterns, pay attention. Pay attention. He, he warns them. Think about the scripture. David, King David, he committed adultery, yet God forgave him and certainly one day took him to heaven to be with him. David was disciplined for his sin, but he was not rejected by God. But notice, David corrected his behavior. There's no other mention in the scriptures of, of another opportunity where David had us the same issue. He corrected the behavior. God helped him. He disciplined him for that mistake and that sin. He certainly did. But David lived a life where he said, no more, no hint of sexual immorality for me. So, I think there's two indications of what a person's character are. Maybe there's a lot, but there's at least two. What makes you laugh and what makes you weep. That can indicate sometimes who you are on the inside of who you are. And the next thing that Paul warns about is, well, watch out what makes you laugh. Watch out what makes you laugh. No hint of harmful speech should be in the life of the true believer. Those first three are improper among God's holy people, verse 3. Verse 4, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. Obscenity is shameless talk. Last Sunday we spent a lot of time discussing. You understand what something is shameful to talk about. You understand that. There are things that are discussed in our, in our world, in the restaurants, around dining room tables that are shameful to even mention. There are gatherings of friends from long ago that get together and they sit around and they share these shameless conversations that if anyone in their life who respected them heard would no longer respect them. Maybe that's something you can identify with. Yes, sometimes in my life I've had moments of shameful talk. Paul warns them that shameless talk is prevalent in the culture. It shouldn't be prevalent in the believer. Foolish talk, as our scripture reference it, literally means stupid words. Stupid words. If you take that Greek term and you translate it out. Stupid words. A waste, waste of time. Things that waste. Things that are 
kind of silly to talk about? Foolish talk. What are you spending your time doing? Here's the issue, right? If you're spending your time having nothing but foolish talk, you're not spending your time sharing the love of Jesus with others. The next point is similar. No coarse jokes. In the life of a believer, nothing vulgar, nothing nasty, nothing terrible, no hint. This is a strong scripture call. This is a strong wake-up call. This is a strong message to some believers that I've met in my lifetime. No hint of these things. That's the standard. That's the scripture. You know why? Why is it so important? Because it's easy to say, well, man, well, it's hard to get rid of those things. But why? Think about the why. Why? Because Christ is calling you to love like he loves. And if we met Jesus Christ and he could come here and you could meet him and spend a few days with him, hours hearing him talk, you would never hear out of his mouth obscenity, foolish talk, and of course joking. Now, it's easy to attack those things. But what's, what's also easy is to point out something like this. There was a lady in my church where I grew up. And when you finished talking with her, you felt like you talked to an angel. You did. Maybe you have someone in your life like that. When I finished talking to her, I felt like I had talked with an angel. She was loving. She was compassionate. She was kind. She was gracious. I've never in my life, she, she still goes to my dad's church, I've never in my life seen her get upset. I've never in my life seen her get angry. I've never in my life heard her have to use, she's a Sunday school teacher, I've never heard her have to raise her voice in discipline. Because of the type of person she is, everyone from kids all the way up to the oldest adults respect her, love her, and look to her as an example. That's the call of scripture. I don't know if she realizes that or not. I, I think that's just the way she's chosen to live her life for Jesus. But she doesn't realize that she is a perfect example of Ephesians 5. Why? Because when I'm around her, she inspires me to be more like Jesus. But I also know people, and I can list some names, but I won't, of people who say they love Jesus and have gone to church for years and years and years and years. And when you're around them, it brings you down. When you're around them, it makes you feel worse about yourself, worse about who you are, worse about your life. There's both in the church. And Paul is warning, you know what? In the church, though, it's supposed to be more like that sweet, sweet lady. We're not supposed to have a hint of harmful speech in our lives. But rather, verse 4, thanksgiving. But rather, thanksgiving. Let your conversation be full of kindness and love and thanks to those around you. That's a high call. It is. 
to have no hint of these things in your life, that's, that's a big calling. But through Jesus Christ, all things are possible. Through Jesus Christ and the new life he gives that Ephesians has talked about all along, he's blessed you with rich living. And this is the type of rich living he wants you to have. My mom, my mom always said, which many of you have said, and I think this sums up this segment really well on speech. Uh, and it's the very common phrase. If you have nothing, if you don't have something nice to say, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. And I think that's Paul's, Paul's reminder. If you don't have something that uplifts and encourages and gives thanks to those around you, it's probably because it's not to be said. Very strong and very powerful. And then Paul closes now. Now this is a careful caution. Because it'd be easy to see these scriptures and say, okay, he's saying that if I've ever had coarse joking, then I'm never going to be able to enter into heaven. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is warning of these things, if bad conduct is flowing out of your life, and if harmful speech is flowing out of your life, there's a good chance you've never really understood the love of Jesus for your own self. You've never understood Jesus and who he is. And then it's a warning. It's a warning because the world around them was telling the church, go ahead, sin. You can still sin and do all these bad things and come to church on Sunday and you're all right. It's all good. It's all fine. So Paul is giving them a warning. No, it's not. If your life has these things as an idol, they have these things as habitual sin practices, you better be cautious. You better be cautious because the consequence of perverted love is serious. The consequence of perverted love is serious. Anything that puts up something else before God perverts the love plan that he has for you and for me. Anything. And so look what Paul says to those people. It's a serious warning. Let no one deceive you. They were trying to deceive them all around. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Those who have no inheritance in God's kingdom have never been washed by the blood. They've never been sanctified through the Spirit. And they've never been justified through Jesus' death on the cross. They've missed those things. So their life looks different than ours. Their life looks different than the high holy calling that Jesus calls us to. And Paul warns them. You know what? He warns them. If you continue to live your life in habitual sin, there is exclusion from God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. 
Verse 5 says, if any such person is an idolater, put someone, something else besides God first. They have no inheritance in the kingdom. Their inheritance in the kingdom is, is not there. God is the first priority. How he says we should live is our priority. How he says a changed Christian should look, that's how our life ought to be. And if your life is not like that, it's time to sit back and evaluate, have I really made Jesus Christ the most important thing in my life? That's really all he's trying to do to this church in Ephesus is warn them. There's a lot of sin going around. And, and in a sense, as their pastor, he's telling them, I don't know. He doesn't know their home life. I don't know what you do when you leave the church. So that's why I have to make this warning so big and so strong and so powerful that you understand that if you have something else besides Jesus as the God of your life, the most important thing, it's not a good result for you. People who practice these sins are excluded from that relationship with God. Not only are they excluded from God, but there's punishment. There's punishment. There's punishment. Those six things that he talked about, and in verse 5 he says, you have no inheritance in Christ. You're excluded. Verse 6 continues to say, and because of these things, God's wrath comes. On who? Not on the believer. Not on those who are trying to love Jesus with the most of their heart, but on the disobedient. On the disobedient. These claims are scary. They're not meant to be taken lightly at church on a Sunday morning. God judges sin no matter where he finds it. And he does not want to find it in the life of his child. He does not want to find it in the life of his child. I can't understand. I've, I've always studied the scripture. But it has helped me to understand the scripture better because of being a dad. Because I can understand that. I can understand the fact. I know it's true. I don't want to see sin in the life of my son. I don't want to see disobedience in the life of my son. I don't want to see my son use unwholesome talk. Yes, at two years old, he's learning words he shouldn't say, right? Not from me, not from, but just words that aren't the best to say. Not necessarily bad words yet. Praise the Lord. Pray for protection for your kids. But, but words still that aren't appropriate at the right times. He learns those things. And when you hear them, you think, no, that's not it. That's not right. Not because I'm a pastor and that's how I want him to live, but because that's not how God wants you to live. He wants you to obey. He wants you to love. He wants you to serve. He wants you to uplift those around you. I'm not attacking Graham here. I'm attacking childhood. I'm attacking myself. I think back to some of the things how I was disobedient to my parents. And it makes me remember. That's what God sees. That's what God sees in my life. God judges sin 
and his children. And he judges sin harshly in those who are disobedient. He does. What controls you? What ordinary life things control you? Where is your focus? How are your behaviors? Do you behave as someone who loves those around you? Or, or do you behave more like some of these warnings in the scripture today? Verse 7, he really makes the point true. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Paul issues a warning. You know what else is happening to the church in Ephesus? They're becoming friends with the world around them. They're getting close with people who are doing these bad things. They're getting close with people who are having a hint of sexual immorality or a hint of obscene talk or a hint of foolishness in their life. They're partnering and they're becoming friends with them. And Paul says, stop. What's that doing for you? I'll tell you, he says, it's dragging you down. Don't partner with them. Instead, let your love look different. Let the type of love you have in your life look more like Jesus has. Let your love be like the life of Jesus who Jesus gave his children victory over sin. He, Jesus gave victory over the pattern of sin in life. He gave victory in friendships that friends can walk together with Jesus Christ. He gave victory over the power of death at the cross. And it's not easy, and we stumble and we fall sometimes, but because of our new life, we are able to get back up. We are able to disassociate from those sins. We're able to remove patterns of bad behavior from our life. And we're able to love in a different way. Look at the last point this morning with me. A Christian walk with Jesus can never be sinless. But by God's help, we can sin less and less and less. Sin is no longer our master. Jesus is our master. And we live a different life of love. Thanks to him. Bow in a word of prayer with me. Lord, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth in your word. Your love looks so different. The kind of love you call us to looks so different than the world around us. You have brought us out of darkness and pushed us into the light so we might be an example to those around us. Because of what you've done on the cross, you've given us victory over sin. You've given us the ability to have a love that looks differently. So help us to use that, Father. 
Help us to live a life of love in stark contrast of the fake love we see in the world around us. Father, I pray for each person in our sanctuary today in this auditorium. They are yours. They belong to you. Guide them. Help them. Bless them. Give us strength and endurance for the journey to follow our walk of faith, chasing after our Father. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.